From the studio of KPSU Portland and in association with the Department of History at Portland State University, this is Beyond Footnotes. Join us as we explore public, local, and world history through discussions with professors, authors, and fellow students. Thank you for joining us. This is Beyond Footnotes. I'm Ryan Wisnor. And I'm Joshua Justice. The scholarly journal has long served as a hallmark of academia. It's the medium through which historians reveal their research, test new ideas and approaches, and generally lay the foundation for writing more comprehensive studies. An article pioneering a new methodology may even aid the creation of a new field of study and in turn, a new journal to propagate its outlook. Customarily, the scholarly journal acts as a crucial communication apparatus within academia. When done successfully, it alleviates the obstacles of time and space, connecting historians in a discourse across continents and at opposite ends of a century. The internet has obliterated these barriers, globalizing the discourse in near real time. But behind the scenes of a historic journal, the work of the editors has largely remained the same over the past 20 years. Or has it? The year 2017 marks the 20th anniversary of Portland State University becoming the editorial home for the Pacific Historical Review. The PHR is one of the longest continually published academic journals in the country and is highly regarded for its role in covering U.S. and Trans-Pacific history. The PHR is now in its ninth decade of chronicling the people, politics, and culture found along and within the Pacific Rim. The journal is currently under the editorial leadership of PSU scholars Mark Rodriguez and Brenda Frank. Former editors David Johnson, Carl Abbott, and Susan Vladimir Morgan edited the PHR from 1997 to 2014, a period of time considered to be the journal's platinum age. Today, we welcome to Beyond Footnotes a roundtable selection of current and past editors to discuss the origins and accomplishments of the Pacific Historical Review. We'll ask these editors about the future of academic journals and finally get a preview of the May 2016 issue of the PHR. Joining us now are David Johnson and Carl Abbott, former managing editor and co-editor, respectively. David Johnson is a U.S. social and intellectual historian at Portland State University, an award-winning instructor and an author of Founding the Far West, California, Oregon, Nevada, 1840 to 1890, which received the 1992 Best Book Award from the Pacific Coast branch of the American Historical Association. Carl Abbott is the author of How Cities Won the West, Four Centuries of Urban Change in Western North America, published in 2008. Abbott is Professor Emeritus of Urban Studies and Planning at PSU, where his work focuses on the history of cities, particularly Portland, within the American West. Additionally, we're pleased to be joined by the PHR's current managing editor, Mark Rodriguez. Mark is an award-winning author on the subject of Mexican-American history, and he's a professor of Chicano and legal history at PSU. His most recent work, entitled Rethinking the Chicano Movement, published in 2015, details and contextualizes the Mexican-American social movement of the 1960s and the 1970s. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. Welcome to Beyond Footnotes. Thank you. Thank you. So I want to begin uh, asking maybe uh, David and Carl, can you tell us what the relationship of the PHR to the American Historical Association is and what the Pacific Coast Branch is? Well, the uh, Pacific Coast Branch is the formal home for the journal, and it's, it's the only branch of the National American Historical Association in the country. It was created in the early 20th century because Pacific Coast historians 
basically found it difficult to get to the meetings, which were usually in New York or Washington or Chicago. And so they created their own branch to hold a meeting up and down the railroad line on the Pacific Coast. And then in 1932, they branched out to create the journal, the Pacific Historical Review, mm. where it was created at UCLA. For most of its life, it was based at UCLA and then, then moved to Portland State, which is its second and permanent home. What was the initial focus, I guess, of the PHRs, the, the articles found within? In the very early years, it was a general history journal, uh, sort of a, a miniature version of the American Historical Review. But because of the interests of the people who are most likely to contribute, you know, scholars in the West Coast, it fairly quickly began to develop its focus on Pacific Coast and Western American history and also American relations with the Pacific and Asia. And I think uh, one of our key aims when we became editors was to really expand that Pacific focus and to make the PHR, when the opportunity presented itself, a journal about the United States as a Pacific nation. There's a lot of a lot of research on the United States in early America as an Atlantic part of the an Atlantic world, and uh, what we tried to do is to shift that focus importantly to the Pacific side of American history. Mm -hmm. And having the opportunity to do that brings me to the question of how did PSU become the home of the Pacific Historical Review? Carl, you mentioned that it was previous at UCLA. How did the, this uh, important journal wind its way up here in Portland? Well, the, the longtime editor, Norris Hundley, who did you know, a fabulous job with the journal, was retiring and UCLA actually effectively declined to continue to make the commitment because it's a commitment of faculty time and you know office space and other you know other support and UCLA decided it wanted to go in a different direction and it left the journal sort of looking for a home I think it was David you were approached right well no actually I um, was department chair of the history department here at the time and and I had published in it. I knew Carl had published in it. We had both served on the editorial board. And I got a notice saying that the journal's editorial home is up for bid. I called the chair of the search committee because I didn't believe it because it had been such an institution at UCLA. And he told me, yes, no, it, it is available and for the reasons Carl mentioned. And so I decided that um, I put in a bid for it for, for the history department on the grounds that it would be something that would increase the stature of the department and the university substantially and also become a really wonderful place for graduate students in particular to become involved in kind of research and publication. So we made a bid. Uh, actually, one of the things that the chair of the search committee said to me when I talked to him over the phone, he said, PSU is kind of a tough contestant because you don't have a doctoral program. It's not a research one university. He said, I suggest that you and Carl Abbott make a joint application, kind of having a double team them. And he goes, I think that that would actually be more effective. And so I approached Carl. He agreed. And we went forward with that. And I think Carl was actually at the conference where they uh, accepted Portland State's bid. Right. And it was in Hawaii, which was very nice. Um, <laughs> But and I, I recall David just called me up, said want to talk about something. So we had we went out, had a with springs, I think. So we sat yeah. sat out on the uh, in the park blocks, and he told told me what was going on. And I said that sounds like fun. <laughs> I, I had one other thing. We also had to get the the university. Actually, the president and the provost made the actual application, and 
Carl and I asked for a lot from them uh, on the grounds that, look at it, at Portland State, which is basically has thin funding, it has to be very, very well supported. And actually asked for more than we needed, and they gave it to us. And I think one of the reasons we've survived is that the ground, the kind of the foundation memorandum of agreement between Portland State and the branch was one that committed the university to kind of a substantial uh, investment in it. Now, with such a long and established, respected journal, how do you guys go about seeking to break new ground, but also preserving the tradition and legacy of the journal? Should I answer that? I actually yeah, this is one for you, Mike. Uh, Mark, Mark should yeah. answer yeah. that because he's, he's at the helm now. Yeah, it seems to me that uh, when I first took the job, I, I was looking over the first issue, and it, it struck me that much of what we publish currently was actually laid out in, in, in the agenda for what they sought to do when they established the journal. And so for me, I think a couple things have changed. Since, say, 1965, immigration from the Pacific Rim has expanded significantly, probably exponentially. And with that, uh, research into this trans-Pacific community that that really joins together uh, all the peoples and places of the Pacific Rim. And so it seems to me that one of the things that I've committed myself to is expanding the reach in terms of who we speak to about uh, the journal. And so one of the things I think that's really important is we're not only bringing in scholars from the U.S., but, and I would also say this is a long tradition, uh, the journal maintains its commitment to international scholars and publishing their work as well. Um, I would also say in terms of vetting uh, new articles, one of the things I take really seriously is going out and soliciting people from universities in the Philippines, Japan, the U.S., Australia, and other places. And so I think that process has led to, I think, a really strong and rich uh, momentum moving forward to, to preserve the things we do, but also perhaps uh, expand upon them. One of the things that struck me as we, over the years when we received articles, is how much, for example, work there is, interesting work there is about the United States and the Philippines, which in an American history textbook gets a couple paragraphs in one chapter, and maybe a second paragraph in another in the World War II chapter, and that's about it. Yet there's a lot of scholarship, not only about U.S diplomatic relations, but about Americans in the Philippines. And the PHR provides a place where that sort of scholarship can be integrated into kind of a larger Pacific Rim consciousness. Very true. So in 2000, the cover of the PHR changed. There was a map added. It was Hubert Howe Bancroft, uh, 1899 map of the New Pacific. I guess I kind of want to get some idea into what you feel the importance of this change was well, we thought long and hard about it. We want, one of the first things we wanted to do was to change the cover, um, to give it kind of a more contemporary stamp. And this was in an age when ex- people actually held the physical journal and looked at the cover. Now, that's no longer really relevant, but it was very important to us at the time. And we chose, um, and I think actually it was Carl who came up with the map from Bancroft's uh, The New Pacific. Yeah. Because it's a it's a very vivid map and it provides a great background visually, but also because it represents a moment in which intellectual life in the in the Pacific Coast saw the Pacific as a place of American domination, rising American domination. You know, at the turn at the turn of the century, and the scholarship that we were receiving and anticipated uh, encouraging was scholarship along the lines that Mark mentioned that focused on unraveling 
that sense of American domination, seeing the Pacific in a different way. And in our introduction to the first issue that had the new cover, we made note of that in terms of, you know, the journalism is now commentary, historiographical commentary on the map depicted on the cover. Right, because the map was made at an imperialistic moment in American history, just as we were acquiring Hawaii and the Philippines, becoming a Pacific military power, if you will. It speaks to a particular moment in American history, but also lays out the framework, which has then been negotiated and renegotiated, both through America's Pacific Wars in, with Japan, in Korea, in, in Vietnam, also American economic relations, American missionaries, that whole complex of ways in which people from the United States interact with people from this larger Pacific world and to become part of that world. And just one thing for Mark, you know, the cover is uh, kind of an editorial prerogative. Yes. Nobody really looks at them anymore except the people in the editorial office, but you're perfectly <laughs> free to change it. <laughs> right. Now, I, I think the Journal of American History uh, has a different cover for each issue. And as time goes on, fewer and fewer people actually hold these things. Right. So right. In, in some ways, I think, for me, it, it does serve as this sort of roadmap for thinking about the kinds of stuff we want to look at. And for me, I think looking at the Pacific, it, it just integrates a whole other part of the globe into an American imperial framework. So those who study the, the Caribbean are very well aware of what's going on in this sort of mapping of space and gunboat diplomacy. Mexican historians are very much aware of this. And so I think for U.S. history to sort of think about this globally, um, it, it's really something that I think Carl and David did a fine job of showing how it's both a legacy but also a commitment on the part of the journal to continue that research, that unraveling. And in reading your the foreword, the introduction to that issue in 2000, um, it kind of struck me that you were also trying to provoke more scrutiny. It was kind of a call for historians to really uh, investigate it deeper. Did you find that you got a positive response from historians, or w was there a conflict over your choice of the map? We had a discussion at the editorial meeting, and yes. I, I recall some people casting a quizzical eye at it. Actually, before we introduced it, we showed it at an editorial meeting a year before. And I don't remember exactly who, but somebody impressed upon us, you need to explain this, which we intended to do. But right. uh, I do re recall, even today, thinking we really do need to explain this because it, it's a very powerful image of an imperial sense of possession. Turning to maybe some of what you could call significant landmark works in the PHR, I'd like to look at a few special issues. In 1999 and 2000, there were two of these special issues. The first was titled Orange Empires, and it was comparing the history of Miami and Los Angeles. And then the following year, they published Women's Suffrage, The View from the Pacific, and it compared women's suffrage in nine places in the Pacific Rim. So can you maybe tell us how these special issues came about? Sure. And the Orange Empires issue came out of a conference at the Huntington Library in Southern California, and it occurred to me looking over the program that it would be really interesting to put basically Southern California, you know, one American Mediterranean place in kind of dialogue with South Florida, the other, and to, to see what kind of sparks might be struck. It's hard to argue that Miami is a Pacific city. <laughs> I can tell you about Bolivia later. 
but it did see, it did seem to us that it was worth putting sort of the southeast, the southwest, this, the, those ends of the Sun Belt in conversation with each other. And it was it was mostly recent history, you know, the last generation or so that people were looking at. So that was the reasoning behind that one. And similarly with the uh, special issue on women's suffrage in the Pacific, which I think is really a landmark issue that uh, shifted kind of the orientation of studies of women's suffrage. It similarly came out of a, not so much a special conference, but of a series of uh, convention sessions that two people, um, Ellen Bois and Bob Cherney, Robert Cherney, Professor Bois of UCLA and Professor Cherney of San Francisco State, that they put on at a previous uh, conference of the Pacific Coast Branch. And they came to us and said, we have this idea, we have a set of uh, participants, would you be interested in this as a special issue? And I think our immediate response was very much yes, when? And it, 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 you know, special issues are very tricky for journals because they don't always come together. And one of the things that our predecessor, Norris Hunley, warned us against or advised us was, if you're going to do special issues, have there be a tryout. As in the case of Orange Empires, it was based on a conference, a special conference on the issue. And so you, we received the papers finished after the conference was over. Same thing with the women's suffrage in the Pacific. Uh, we weren't rounding up and asking and begging people to write essays. We actually had them in hand, and, and they, were, they were also self-selected. So I think that that worked out very well. And one thing you'll, you'll find out about professors is there's always somebody who's tardy. There's always somebody who doesn't get things in by the deadline and still doesn't get them in when you extend the deadline. And when you're trying to put together a special issue, that creates real problems sometimes. Sometimes they have to be evicted. Well, and just a short note on this. Uh, I, we have several special issues right now that are pending, and I've tended to see those as projects that I outsource. And so I commission usually a special uh, issue editor who I then force to make sure that all the papers are coming in in good shape. And um, I think the trial and error aspect is really important because, for example, we have one on alternative Wests uh, with quite a few new scholars in Western history. We have one on technology in the West, the Pacific Rim, excuse me. And those are all being developed in an outsourced manner uh, with somebody as lead editor, maybe two people, and four, five, not six. I, I think that's often too many authors. And so I think what helps us is that we can tap into new trends and new research. And I think the practical issue of journal publishing is that the better the papers are when we get them, and I think Carl and David are pointing to that, um, the better the journal issue is going to be. And so one of the things I put a lot of pressure on the editors, and I'm glad that they're all so nice and willing to commit their time as, as scholars, is, is, is that they get those to us in really great shape. And uh, right now it looks like we'll have a few coming in in the next year, slated to come out in the next two years. Um, and there are several others that are pending. They may be more slow to press, but I think I tend to make sure that those folks are taking the time and presenting them at conferences. Uh, and so I think, I think it's really a great opportunity for us to tap into current uh, research, and I think that's always been the role of the special issue, sort of push boundaries and find out what's happening. 
Your description of how these special issues came about reminded me of a passage that was in Norris Hundley's article kind of covering the history of the PHR up to 1996, where he mentions that the review's staple fare from the beginning has consisted of unsolicited manuscripts, going on to say that on one level this reflects a conscious open-door policy, especially in an invitation to newcomers to make their debuts among distinguished company. It sounds like, like these special issues, you are not as much taking the lead, but you're following the trends and the journal is acting as a kind of the communication hub for these new trends and new ideas. Um, is that still the, the case with, or for most articles, as Hunley wrote in 96, that most of the writings are unsolicited? Yeah, the vast majority of what we receive um, comes from graduate students, um, uh, early level scholars, uh, as well as people who are established and perhaps uh, going off in a new direction. And so I think that's the case. Uh, the other thing that I really like about um, this job is that uh, I think it's nice to strip away all of the things that are often involved in book publishing. Can I call it nepotism, favoritism, things like that? I think journals don't do that, and I'm really proud of the fact that we don't do that. And so we get unsolicited manuscripts in a variety of ways. Uh, some of them go back several times. Some of them take a f several years to uh, make it uh, into the journal. Uh, and I think the one thing there I think that's really important is that um, they're getting a fair reading. We're taking the blind review process seriously. And if it's somebody coming out of a top school with a great advisor, wonderful. If it's not, we give it the same consideration. And I think that's really important. In that same 1996 issue, uh, Norris Hunley also mentioned an increase in the number of contributions from graduate students. Have you noticed this trend increasing in the past 20 years? Journals, generally speaking, the Pacific Historical Review in particular, is, have always been important outlets for advanced graduate students. And by this, we mean basically people who are taking a chapter from a dissertation or a seminar paper that is uh, that they've really polished. So it's we published quite a few graduate student papers in our years, and there was always an annual award for the best paper by a graduate student. And at least once, we had two articles published by a graduate student that we thought were so good that we, we gave two awards. So it's um, graduate students and, as Mark pointed out, young scholars in the sense of people in their first years uh, as an assistant professor have been kind of primary authors. Not, not solely, but the primary authors. Yeah, and one of the things that, that we do, I'm sure Mark, we did and I'm sure Mark does too, and when you go to conferences and you, know, you try to scout sessions where you think there might be interesting papers, and one of the jobs is to encourage new scholars to essentially have the guts to submit their, their piece, because often you're not certain, you're, you're shy, you're not certain, oh, I can't submit it there, it's not good enough. Well, yeah. if we think it's pretty interesting, then give it a try. And it'll probably go through a couple rounds of revision, but still, it's a kind of mentoring role that editors can take. And Mark has been doing a lot of that, and we made a particular point of it in, uh, in our years for the reason I mentioned earlier, and that was that the, a move of the journal from a various, very large uh, university, to, renowned university, to a smaller university raised questions about credibility. And so Carl and I were constantly, and Susan as well, Susan Vladimir Morgan as well, were constantly recruiting articles. And, uh, you know, I think in many cases for a young scholar to have an editor ask them to submit an article is a real boost and can be a, an important moment in their career. 
I know Mark has been going all over doing this. Yeah, I think I, I think I spend more time actually in the hallways at the conference than actually in the panels uh, because I wind up meeting with people whose whose topics sounded interesting. And it seems to me, and I've I've done this several times because I think I've given presentations at universities about sort of the submission process. I've been on panels at conferences with other uh, acquisitions editors for uh, presses and other journal editors, um, and and there there are. As Carl pointed out, these real fears, you know, like, well, how do I do this? Is, is it ready? And I think having the opportunity to talk to an editor to send your material to me, perhaps before you do a formal submission, uh, and then go to formal submission, I, I think that can be very helpful. And it can sort of strip away uh, that sense of, um, I don't know, sophomoric self-positioning that you're not quite ready yet. Uh, and oftentimes the stuff we get from graduate students is published quickly. Um, we recently had, last year, a graduate student su submit something and it was published by the end of the year. It was just that well written, that well organized, and the referees thought it was amazing. That's not always what happens, um, but I, I just was contacted by someone who's now an assistant professor who submitted to David and Carl and Susan, and now it's coming back to us finally revised as that person is an assistant professor. And so um, having a conversation with that individual was really important for me because I realized that at that point there was concern, well, ha have I waited too long? Have I upset the journal? And I said, well, you know, lives are really busy for graduate students, especially those that actually are lucky enough to get a job these days. And so, yes, now that you've got your books unpacked and your files ready, mm -hmm. send it to us. And I, and I think there's been such instability in the journal world that the PHR has in the last few years, and I just was mentioning this to David, we kind of are a stable, well-organized journal that's still doing what it should be doing. And other journals, I think, are doing quite well, but a lot have been moving, a lot have moved several times in the last few years. And so one thing I can say I'm really grateful for is that David and Carl kind of passed on this continuity and convinced Portland State that it was worth continuing to have us here. What makes the PHR so different from some of these others that are, uh, as you say, are becoming more unstable? <laughs> well, there are many that are stable, uh, you know, uh, but I, and I think that questions of university funding have mainly driven the moves of several of these journals to different locations over the last few years. I think oftentimes that's a, that's a one-off move, and I think during that period there's a little bit of chaos, uh, obviously, as things are packed up and shipped off. And I think that that hasn't happened for us, and it hasn't happened in a long time, and so that's good. Uh, the Journal of American History, the American Historical Review, are well situated uh, at Indiana University. And so there are many examples of journals that have the same kind of uh, position that we have. But I've just noticed myself, and uh, uh, Brenda and I were talking in the office about how it seems every year or so we get an email about another prominent journal that's now mm -hmm. no longer being funded at the same level that it once was. So there's always that struggle. And David, in particular, and I, over the years, have had many conversations with provosts and deans about why it's important to keep the funding at the adequate level, what we think is an adequate level. And within reason, they, they see reason. We've had some big fights. <laughs> um, but in the end, as Carl just said, they've done the right thing. And one might say after, after they've tried everything else. But one key thing is that the history department is very, very solid in its support for the journal. And I think that's largely because the journal supports students, and it provides a means by which our graduate students in particular, but also to undergraduates as well, 
get something that is unprecedented at most state universities, and that is an inside view of how scholarly research is produced. And they also get a connection to the, you know, the foremost scholars in the field because they go, to, they go to conferences and they represent the Pacific Historical Review. They call them on the phone and say, your book review is late. They, mm -hmm. they uh, send back their manuscripts and say, you need to do some revisions. And it's scary for them, but they make personal and professional connections. And I think that that's had a great effect on uh, the solidarity of the history department in wanting to keep the journal as a, a now Portland State institution. Yeah. And, uh there's one nameless senior professor who loves to talk on the telephone and not communicate in any other way. And uh, we would, of course, tell the graduate students to call this person up, <laughs> but right. to, to, to budget three or four hours. Yeah. They, they got to know, they, they've gotten to know him very, very well. And he is very distinguished. We can't say his name. And a wonderful person, and a PHR author, and a talkative. And we still hear from him. Uh, and that, that's something that's probably not coming to an end anytime soon. Um, I would just like to add that I, I think one of the things that's really impressive is that oftentimes authors will write our graduate fellows or our honors fellow and apologize to them for not revising soon enough or not answering their email as quickly as they ought to have. And I think that's kind of a neat, humbling experience as a graduate student uh, or an undergraduate. And if I could just say one thing about bringing students in, I, I think for me, one of the most impressive things I've seen is having uh, not only the graduate fellow, uh, two fellows next year, that'll be nice, but uh, the graduate interns who come in uh, and do one credit and get hands-on experience, the graduate students who take the graduate fellow-directed editing course. And we had, for two years, uh, participation from the honors program. I'd like to see if we could start that up again sometime in the future because they've been amazing. And then this summer will be our second year of working with uh, low-income and minority students uh, in the office through the Upward Bound program at Portland State. And so we've really moved students into the space. I actually had to ask uh, for time in my office uh, because it was being used so often by our fellows and students so that I could have my office hours. <laughs> So uh, I guess I want to move into looking into the future. And Mark, talk to you a little bit. Of, you know, you mentioned there's there is some instability within the journals nationally. I mean, one of the other trends that has been prevalent is the open access and the internet and the uh, journals that are predatory. And I guess the gatekeeping role that journals have traditionally had, editors like yourself have had, is uh, because of the innovations of the internet have been kind of. How, how do I say? But you, you, you're no longer as much as the gatekeeper as much as now that you are trying to make sure that the credibility is still within journals. Um, yeah, almost a changing role to a curator. Right. Uh, if I could disagree with both of you about that. I, I, I think that the main issue for most people that are sending us articles has to do with the idea of peer review and what that means for their own professional development and advancement. Um, say, for example, a assistant professor in their third year review um, something that's online, open source, even if the university supports that, it's not going to get the same ranking as a peer-reviewed journal. For example, many, many nations actually create lists of what they consider A, B, C, D, I don't know if they go any further down the list than that, journals. And that's really important to people's forward momentum in their profession. Uh, while I think all of these things are innovative and I think help move the discourse forward, the peer-reviewed journal article um, I think has maintained both credibility in the field 
but also this important gatekeeping role that you're, you're speaking of. Because to go through three layers of peer review, which is often what happens, um, is something that many books do not go through. And certainly self-developed blogs would not probably go through. And so I think we still have a very important role there. Maybe less so in the public discourse, where I think you were both right to point out that there's a lot more information available to people. But in terms of what it means to maintain the professional standards internationally, journals and peer-reviewed journals are particularly important, and they are given certain rankings by faculties and departments and colleges globally. I think in Australia we are an A1 journal, uh, although they just did away with those rankings a couple years ago. And so we've always maintained that first tier ranking. I, that's really something I can attribute to David and Carl's hard work over the last 20 years. So I, I would say we're still very, very much central to people being able to prove themselves as scholars who've done their work in a peer-reviewed uh, environment. And I think we'll continue to have that role. Although, I do agree that how people get access to the journal is changing. The University of California Press has asked us to begin to offer free samples of, of new issues for some certain number of days. I'm not quite sure when that's being implemented. Uh, and then also have highlight journals that they are going to be marketing across social media platforms and other things like that. And so I think we're embracing the brave new world, but I think historians tend to be fairly conservative. And so in a lot of ways, uh, it's important to the profession that we maintain that commitment to peer review. Although some journals are, are doing some interesting things, uh, open-ended roundtables that they're publishing, interviews like this one, finding their way into, into the journal, and lots of other stuff of that sort. So. so looking at the future of academic journals from maybe a different angle, journals are traditionally seen as they're hallmarks of this era in which information is contained in a physical object. But now that the you know, information is increasingly being available uh, digitally, how do you see this digital era of history affected by the PHR's presence within this new community of historians that are increasingly connected through these means? Well, I think there's a difference between information being available and historical scholarship being available. There's tons of information available, and it's more and more all the time. In my field of U.S. urban history, there are lots and lots of community historians who are adding interesting information all the time, blogging about it, developing you know, sites with, with images, etc. That's still raw material for people to work with to try to craft into arguments. And that's where historical scholarship comes in. And that's where I think the, the value added of a peer-reviewed journal comes in. Occasionally, peer reviewers and editors say, oh, you got that fact wrong, but mostly they're saying, I think you have an interesting point here, but I don't quite think you're making it. What is it you're trying to say? Can I help you say it better? Uh, have you thought about this possible interpretation that maybe contradicts what you say? What what do you do about that? So that's where there really is value added in the process. You know, Mark made the point that uh, history is a fairly conservative discipline intellectually, and I think that's true. Um, but it is also the case that digital publication does open up doors that will be, if they come about, fairly startling for the PHR, which is a very traditional journal in the sense that it's, it looks gray. It's words on a page. It's never been, we, it, it, certainly in our time, was not illustrated very often, but 
as you move away from the physical journal to the digital journal, you have the opportunity to include all kinds of visual materials, moving images, sound, and the like. I think it's going to, it, it is happening, it is, it's, it's inevitable, and it will pose new editorial challenges, both in terms of the editorial office and the refereeing and so on. But throughout all this, what Carl said I think is the case. You know, this is, this is an academic journal. It is part of the process of the way universities operate. It is the, it is the standard by which faculty are, in terms of their research, assessed. And, and journals are ranked, and fortunately the PHR is considered to be a, you know, a top flight, top journal. And just to show you how slowly these things move, we were really excited that in our digital publication, our color photos are now in color. Uh, they are not in color in the journal, and maybe not in color if you do interlibrary loan. But if you get the actual online version uh, through, I think it's Highwire, again, more disruption in the industry. We've moved from one site to another. You now get these really high-quality prints that are in full color. Which they, can't be, they can't be reproduced, though. I do not know what the copyright rules are on that, because they have been granted permission, and that's huh. publication. Um, huh. And I think the main reason there was no color before, just to sort of think about this, is that color paper adds to the cost of, of the issue or the book right. substantially. So a book that has color photos in it has had a significant investment from someone. That's why most books you'll read in most college courses are black and white, despite the fact that the color pictures are probably amazing. And so we have maps now that are in color, but they're only in color in that one space. That's, um, that's terrific, actually. Yeah. Yeah, back in the day, black and white photos were an added expense. And simply repro reproducing any kind of image was technically complicated. Well, we unfortunately have to wrap up fairly soon here, but um, Mark, maybe before we um, end the conversation, could you tell us a little bit more about this current issue? Yes. Th this issue is work that is or was mainly inherited from uh, Carl and David's era, and it actually nicely shows how we are kind of continuing the mission that's been so much a part of the PHR. Um, one of the articles is written by a very senior scholar, uh, I think now retired from the University of California, Riverside, uh, Dever Weber. Uh, and, and that came in as a, I think I can say, a, a, a fairly uh, provocative and extremely long piece. Um, over the last couple years, uh, Professor Weber, myself, Brenda, I think a generation of interns, has helped really, really strengthen that. and. Professor Weber has been amazing to work with. Uh, I think she's been very cordial and, 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 and supportive of this. And what we have, I think, in its final form is a really important article about the ways in which labor history in the U.S. tended to focus on a Western movement momentum east to west, and now she has repositioned it as a south to north and back again, where activists in the Wobbly movement were mainly in places like California, Mexican-American and Mexican uh, nationals. And for them, the movement wasn't about New York and Philadelphia and Chicago. It was about Mexico City, Monterey, and the borderlands. And that shifts significantly our thinking about the Wobblies here in the West. And it also moves it past a sort of understanding that sees the Wobblies as a white European immigrant activist organization and places it within the context of I would say, radicalism has developed in the Americas. The other article uh, by Elizabeth Sine uh, takes a, I would say, multicultural uh, look at labor organizing in California and nicely pivots on this 
uh, way of looking at the world that goes beyond, say, writing a history of just Mexican-Americans or just Japanese-Americans uh, or Filipino-Americans. And it looks at the way in which these multicultural labor organizations developed over time. And then lastly, we have something that's a little bit different for us. It's a piece by uh, Professor Fujita Roni, and that looks at literature comparatively, Mexican-American immigrant uh, literature and Filipino literature. And so I think when I looked at all three of these pieces, uh, it seemed to me that what we had was, although not a special issue, a issue that was special nonetheless, because it was pushing the boundaries of thinking about ethnic history more broadly, about thinking about labor history in very different ways, and then also thinking about the ways that historians should pay attention to literature and other types of uh, sort of creative writing and uh, creative material. And so I, it was just fun for us to work on it, I think. Uh, I'm speaking for myself, but I think everybody that's had input here. And it just seemed like one of those things that just fell, fell into our laps. And it worked well together, and uh, I'm really happy to see it out. Well, thanks so much. I, I really appreciate you all joining us today. It's been a real pleasure having you on the show. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Yep, our pleasure. Beyond Footnotes is sponsored by the PSU Department of History and was recorded in the studios of KPSU. You can find information about the music in this episode on our show page at kpsu.org. And as always, we'd like to take some time here to thank our listeners. Your encouragement, support, it's all so greatly appreciated. We hope that you'll keep listening. We have a few more episodes left in the season. And you can find us on iTunes now. And if you'd prefer, you can also find us on soundcloud.com slash beyondfootnotes and at kpsu.org. We're also on Twitter and Facebook. If you search Beyond Footnotes, you can find updates and some additional information that maybe doesn't make it into the episode. Signing off, I'm Joshua Justice. And I'm Ryan Wisnor. Have a great week.